This episode of 100 Not Out proudly brought to you by the 2017 Greek Island Longevity Retreat to Ikaria, the island where people forget to die. To find out more and to join Damien, myself, and an intimate group of 100 Not Outers, go to www.100notout.com. That's 100notout.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to 100 Not Out, featuring your hosts, Dr. Damien Christoph and Marcus Pierce. Hello and welcome to 100 Not Out, a weekly show dedicated to helping you master the art of aging well. My name is Marcus Pierce, and here I am with the co-founder of The Wellness Couch and The Wellness Guys, the great man himself, Dr. Damien Christoph. How are you, pal? Great, Marcus. We are about to get our frequent fly points up and running. We are on our way over to Montevideo in Uruguay, and let me tell you why. One of our great friends, Guy Lawrence at 180 Nutrition. He's a good bloke. He's a legend. He did a sensational interview with our next guest, and we just had to bring him on to 100 Not Out, Dr. Mario Martinez. That's a great name. I love the way you say it. Dr. Mario Martinez is a U.S. Clinical neuropsychologist who lectures worldwide on how cultural beliefs affect health, longevity, and success. He is the author of the best-selling book. How's this for a book? The Mind-Body Code, How to Change the Beliefs that Limit Your Health, Longevity, and Success. He is the founder of Biocognitive Science, a new mind-body paradigm that investigates the inherited causes of health and the cultural learning of longevity. Here to tell us more and to provide what I think is a completely new slant that we haven't explored that much on the longevity paradigm, we're going to talk to him on 100 Not Out. We're going over to Montevideo in Uruguay and give a very warm welcome to Dr. Mario Martinez. Dr. Mario, welcome to 100 Not Out. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Now, I've got to ask you, your interview on uh, 180 Nutrition um, really did blow my mind. Um, I, Damien and I talk so much on this program about engaging with humanity, having a great social life, moving your body regularly, and doing work that you love and loving the work that you do. But you added a new dimension to this. And you spoke, and again, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not scientific in many respects, so please feel free to add your wealth of knowledge in here. But you spoke about the mind-body connection. We speak about how the mind influences the body, but what influences the mind and you spoke very eloquently on the importance of culture and its influence on the mind. Can you add this longevity slant through culture for our listeners? Because it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, yes, uh, because as you said, uh, pretty, pretty much uh, people accept that, uh, that the mind and the body communicate with each other. But what uh, was missing is uh, what, what was actually influencing the mind. And what I'm bringing to science is the cultural component. And the cultural component is actually the collective beliefs that people have about very important things like uh, what is mother, what is father, aesthetics, ethics, the sense of beauty. And those things actually affect the brain. The brain gets used to whatever the culture is, is uh, presenting it, and it becomes a, an uncultured brain. And I'll give you examples later. But basically the idea is that, uh, that you can't exclude the culture from the uh, formula of mind and body. I, I love this. And while when, when Marcus was, uh, was introducing you, Mario, uh, I was thinking of our great friend, Dr. Bruce Lipton. And, uh, and Bruce Lipton talks about uh, epigenetic control. He talks about the control of the gene um, over, uh, you know, by the environment. And I suppose to a, a large extent, this is what we're talking about, isn't it? We're talking about the environment that you surround yourself in, in other words, your culture, 
the people that you deal with, the, your belief systems, um, how much time you spend on your iPhone, on your smartphone, all those sorts of things actually influence the way in which uh, your body will express itself. Um, we find it fascinating because we've, we traveled over to a, a, a little um, island in Greece called Ikaria. And uh, in Ikaria, we see that they have a very rich culture and their rich culture is far more advanced and so, so much more rich than the culture that we have here, which is only 230 years old. How, how, do you th how limiting is a smaller culture over the expansion of a larger culture on our health and well-being and our longevity, do you think? Well, it really depends more on, rather than the size of the culture, uh, whether they're collectivist or individualist. So, for example, uh, Australia, UK, US are very individualist. The importance goes on the individual development, on the individual achievements. Uh, but if you go to another culture, uh, Japan, China, Korea, they're more collectivist. So it's more like the cooperative component of, of the group and the uh, uh, actual uh, protection of the group. And even when you give tests, when you give memory tests to people in the East and the West, for example, uh, you show them pictures and the people in the, in the West, individuals, remember specific characteristics of the individual. But the people uh, on the uh, Oriental side, on the, uh, um, they basically remember interactions. So, for example, if you have somebody sitting on a bench at a park, the uh, individual societies will, will remember, well, he's wearing a green shirt and he's, uh, he has blonde hair. Uh, but if you ask uh, someone who's Asian from the collective, they'll say, well, he's sitting next to a tree and the tree is next to the water. It's an interactionist kind of thing. And even further, when you look at, for example, the psychoneuroimmunology, how thoughts and emotions affect uh, the immune system and the nervous and endocrine system, uh, shaming causes inflammation. It's known now that when, when, when they shame you, you notice people turn red and they actually, their temperature goes up. And the immune system is responding as if there's some kind of a pathogen there. And it's basically a word that says you're stupid or something that causes uh, you to feel uh, ashamed. So if you shame someone in the individualist culture, they will have a, an immunological reaction, molecules of, of, of uh, inflammation like uh, tumor necrosis factor and uh, interleukins 2 and so forth. They'll cause inflammation. But if you shame someone in an Asian culture, they will only have inflammation if they consider that the, that the group was shamed, not the individual. So you see it, the culture uh, will determine how the immune system is going to respond to, to a certain degree. I find this absolutely fascinating, Dr. Mario. And I really, I, I think for everyone listening who have come from, say, let's say a European culture mm. where it's all about the family. And mm. so if they are, say, shamed at school, they would, say, share it with their family or their wider community and they would be loved and cared for and the rest. Whereas we have a fierce independence, I call it in, say, Australia or, say, England or whatever. And it's, it's if, we, if we are shamed... Not only do many of us feel like we don't know who to go to or where to go to, but we also project that shaming onto ourselves. Mm. And hence, uh, what Dr. Mario is talking about, inflammation and chronic disease and the rest of it rise. My question is, is the answer to that or the antidote to that? Because most of our listeners probably uh, say, you know, in Australia or in the US or the UK where he talks about that individualist nature, is the answer that or the antidote to that that we must heed the wisdom of, say, the Asian countries and many European countries and 
create a tribe so that when the inevitable challenge comes up of some disempowering um, experience or challenge, that we have a tribe of people to go to to, to help us through that process? Well, I think what I work, for example, I work with uh, Fortune 100 companies teaching their executives to deal with the culture component that they, of the organizational culture they create. What I try to teach is uh, what I call hybrid leadership, which is the best of both cultures, the culture where the, where the company comes from and the culture where they're operating. So the same thing would be you want to take the best of the, uh, of the collectivist culture, like the connection with the family and, and the importance of the tribe, but you also want to take the individualist component where the individual also has a, uh, a place and can actually accept their, their worthiness and their self-esteem. Because some of the collective cultures, for example, Nissan made a major mistake in the United States when they started because they were bringing um, their administrators are, were Japanese, which are used to um, basically giving credit to the, the group at the expense of the individual. So when uh, an individual would, would do something right and the, uh, let's say the administrator would say, you did a great job, and he would say, thank you. That's very nice. Uh, that was not the right answer. You had to say, I'm nothing without my group. And although Nissan was having, they were paying great salaries, they had childcare and everything, they had a very high incidence of chronic illnesses because of that issue of not allowing self-esteem to, to value the individual. So it's, I think it's a hybrid combat. It's a combination of what you're wanting of, of the best of, of two cultures. That's really nice. Um, I know that in Australia, um, in, cor- in, the, in a corporate sense, uh, they really struggle with giving feedback. We do feedback sandwiches over here. So uh, a feedback sandwich is say something nice and then uh, slap them and then say something nice. And so they kind of, uh, you know, it's this bruising, uh, but we still love you kind of thing. And, and that doesn't work because uh, if you, for example, the, the, your biology is going to listen to what you're saying. The biology is very symbolic. It's biosymbolic. And uh, if you have, if you do something to somebody that makes them uh, upset or you, you scare them or you say something negative, they're going to have uh, a stress reaction. They're going to have uh, cortisol, norepinephrine and other things. If you say something positive, it could be some of the more positive uh, uh, hormones like um, um, oxytocin and endorphins. So let's say you say to somebody, you did a great job, but uh, let me tell you, you screwed up over here. It's a mixed message. The biology doesn't know how to respond, so it doesn't have any value. It, the reinforcing value is, is actually canceled out, and what the person remembers is the negative rather than the positive. So it's very counterintuitive that what I try to teach executives that, that it's not, it's not what, basically they're using rat psychology, the 20th century, which doesn't work, uh, not even for rats. Rats get sick when you treat them like rats. So imagine what happens when you treat human beings like rats. <laughs> Obviously not going to work. We, we, you've spoken already about culture and behavior, and I'd like to have a go at, at intertwining these because some of the research that I've done into the work that you do, I, I find absolutely fascinating, and I, I have no doubt um, Damien does as well and our listeners. And I'd love to, to draw on this. You've spoken before about, and you've already mentioned about the, I suppose, the physiological response to shaming. I've also heard you talk about, um, I suppose, our belief systems or the belief systems in a, in a wide population of, say, people with cancer and uh, also some, I don't want to necessarily call it personality types in a simplistic way, but the global beliefs of, say, people with, say, uh, diabetes. Would you be happy to share um, what your research has shown you in, say, 
the way that people um, are aging and developing chronic disease and, and the, again, the, the global beliefs that they may have that you think are contributing to this? Well, part of it is just that, that science studies the average. They do average research and they, uh, anything that goes on, the, on the both sides of the tail of the normal curve, they call it nuisance variables and they keep them out of the research. So when you, you're told that you have a, a family illness, uh, that's bad science. There's no such thing as a family illness. You have a propensity to express something, and families eat together the same food. They have pretty much the same thoughts. They have the same environments. So they have a tendency to trigger the propensity of genes that, for example, that will, that will trigger diabetes type 2 or cancer. But it's only a propensity. You have the ability to change that propensity if you become an outlier and be, you come out of that uh, mindset that, uh, uh, that, that you're sentenced because of your family. And one of the things that happens is when you're sentenced like that, you kind of give up. And you say, well, if I'm going to have diabetes, I might as well just uh, eat whatever I want and do whatever I want because it's, it's going to happen. And you create a self-fulfilling prophecy. You create a situation where you create helplessness. Helplessness logically can trigger illnesses because you, you have a, a weak immune system that's not fighting the uh, pathogens. And it's also uh, allowing some of the negative kinds of things to be triggered that are more pr- pr- prone to illnesses. So it's really it, it's a, it's a terrible thing to say that if you have a family illness, this is what's going to happen to you. It's bad science. Can you talk specifically um, about cancer? I mean, in Australia, we talk about, you know, one in three people die from cancer, one in two people die from heart disease, but cancer is something that a lot of people, um, and I'm not here to say that it's just a, it's a, definitely, it's a cause and effect, but can you talk just for a moment about cancer and the personality types that can impact the development of cancer in the human being? Okay, let's say that you have a family that has a propensity to express cancer, uh, the genes that, that can express uh, the possibility for cancer. <clears throat> There's also, this is not cause, this is correlation. There's a correlation with the way that people look at the world. So people that have a propensity for cancer also have a certain amount of, uh, I don't want to call it personality, but a, but a style of, of, of looking at the world where they're caretakers, <clears throat> they take care of everybody, and then they take care of, them, of themselves last. They're afraid of offending people. They have a hard time getting angry and they see the world as something fearful, something that you have to be hyper alarmed about. What that does is that it reduces the population of natural killer cells, not only the population, but the effectiveness of of the natural killer cells, which are the ones that kill precancer cells. And I'm oversimplifying, but basically there are certain correlations that you find in, in certain illnesses and cancer, they call it the C personality, which doesn't have to do with cancer, just a ABC type of personality. And those people have a tendency, but especially have a tendency to be caretakers. And that is not really good for the immune system. You notice that when you're flying, this is a great example of taking care of yourself. They say, if there's a, there's a change in pressure, uh, a mass will come down. And if you're with a child or a disabled person, you breathe first before you give the mass to the other person, because if you pass out, you can't help the person. That is a good thing to remember when you're a caretaker, that you have to take care of your needs before you take care of other people's needs. So then you can you can serve humanity. And that is one of the most one of the biggest indicators of of people that that have a propensity to develop cancer It's not a cause. It's a correlation which you can change. You can become you. One of the causes of health, in, in fact, is to set 
healthy limits. And centenarians can set real good limits. I'll give you an example that I always use because it was so great. This is a 102-year-old man. Uh, I said, I'd like to interview. I'd like to talk to you and, uh, and find out how you live. And he said, sure. When do you want to do it? I said, Saturday. He said, great. What time Saturday? And I said, 9 o'clock in the morning. He said, no, I'm sorry. I have tango lessons at 9 o'clock. So, you know, they know how to set limits. They don't say, oh, I'm going to give up my tango lessons so I can talk to you. And this is what That's a lot of people good. do, isn't it? A lot of people aren't good at saying no. A lot of people will just say yes. And then you, again, um, caretaker or possibly resent the fact that they're constantly saying yes, but they're just struggling with the courage to say no. And, uh, and is this what you refer to um, uh, with, a, with a level of healthy self-esteem that you notice that these 102, 103-year-olds, they have enough self-esteem to say no. They have enough self-esteem to love themselves, to see themselves as handsome or beautiful or gorgeous on the inside or the rest of it. Is that what you observe with most centenarians that you think are, are living the 100 not at lifestyle? Yes, because most cultures teach you what I call pseudo-humbleness. They teach you to deny good things. Like, for example, a little girl says, Mommy, look how beautiful I am. I say, no, darling, you don't say you're beautiful. You wait till other people say it and then you deny it. So you're, you're pseudo-humble because not real humble is to look humble. But centenarians don't have a problem with that. Uh, I, I said to a uh, centenarian uh, woman, you're really beautiful. And she said, yes, I am. Thank you for noticing. You know, it's refreshing <laughs> <laughs> to, to see how they are. So they don't have a problem with that pseudo-humbleness. They, they accept their gift and they accept their goodness and, and they have no problems with it. So what I suggest is to create these subcultures of wellness. And I started already uh, when I went to uh, Australia, to Melbourne and, and Sydney and so forth to create these subcultures of wellness where people begin to reinforce each other's uh, sense of wellness and sense of good, uh, uh, good being. So for example, in one of the workshops, <clears throat> I asked everybody to introduce themselves to the people next to them or behind them, and they could only use their first name and three adjectives. My name is Mario, I'm beautiful, I'm brilliant, or I'm wonderful. And it was amazing at first how hard it was for them to do it. But once they started doing it, the energy in the room changed. I mean, you, see, you saw people laughing. And, and when that happens, you have immunological enhancement because you're actually enjoying yourself, but you're not living that pseudo-humblest, which is not really good for you. Dr. Mario, this is, this is so absolutely fascinating. I'm loving it. We could go for hours. We could go, here, for we could go forever. <laughs> it's great. Unfortunately, I've only got 20 minutes. But... Uh, Dr. Mario, I'm thinking as you're talking about the impact of a group on a group um, and then on a group. And so within Australia, we have, uh, and I think this happens in the United States as well and probably happens in the United Kingdom, um, there's groups that feel that they can uh, project their values onto another group. So they can say, um, you know, and I'm, I'm going to use medicine versus chiropractic versus yeah. the patient moment so uh, medicine says that chiropractors are dangerous all chiropractors go we're not dangerous we do a good job medicine says no no you're dangerous the patients go oh my gosh i'm seeing a chiropractor am i in danger the impact of that that's um that that's outside of the treatment i suppose appears to me to be incredibly um significant both on the profession and on the patient is there a way in which uh, people that are caught up in that can actually overcome that uh, and continue to hear that, you know, chiropractors are dangerous, chiropractors are dangerous, and the patient's going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. How do people tune out of that, or how do they move on from that? Well, the first part is that, that it's really important to realize what the, the power that, that what I call culture editors have. 
on placebo, making you feel good, or nocebo, to make you feel bad or to make you sick. And culture editors are people that cultures will give them power in a particular context, like a doctor in a clinic or a priest in a church and so forth. So the first thing is to be aware that those people can have a lot of power in what they say and how they affect you. And second, I think you have to become a, a very informed consumer and then ask uh, the practitioners who are their patients and if they, have, if they can talk to their patients. And also learn what the limitations of each of the professions. For example, if you have heart problems uh, and you might want to go to a cardiologist, but, but if you have uh, some kind of a back problem, might want to emphasize a, a, a chiropractor. And the key is that not one profession has an answer for everything. So you want to learn to be a, an informed um, consumer and then demand from, from your practitioners to give you information of why they're going to do something and how that's going to work rather than just take it and, 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 cons- and assume that they know more than you do, that you do. They know more physiology than you do, but you know your body better than they do. So it's, a, it's really an interaction of the two. It's a co-authoring of health. Um, I've got a question. Uh, we seem to live in a world where if we're not happy all the time, there's something wrong. We, we should go up to people and go, hey, you going? Go, yeah, we're really well, thanks. When deep inside there's inner turmoil, there's conflict, there's relationship challenges or work challenges or financial stress or the rest. But, you know, I, I find it, I'll just say, I find it disgusting that if you Google happy, and you look at the Google images, everything says, be happy all the time. Um, when in doubt, be happy. And I'm like, look, we're not always happy. Mm, and, um, not always on. and I love uh, what you talk about um, in regards to righteous anger, which is anything but happy, but it's standing up for yourself. Would you be happy to share with people what you've noticed in people that are aging well and, and, and living this 100 not out lifestyle beautifully, what you've observed in their... Um, and the pendulum swing between, you know, happiness and sadness or, or what you uh, refer to as righteous anger? Well, we, we tend to over-medicate uh, with depression. For example, people are not allowed to mourn the death or the end of a relationship. Uh, they're not allowed to express uh, emotions that, that are uh, other than just uh, happy, as you said. So you get over-medicated. That's one thing. But second is that we have 150,000 years of trial and error as homo sapiens. And there's certain causes of health. And one of the causes of health is what I call righteous anger, which means to be angry in a context to protect your innocence, your goodwill, and uh, to protect the innocence of others. It's very good to get angry like that. But you don't want to make it chronic. You just want to make it contextual. If the situation, you get angry, and then you let it go after you're done. But you, you don't want to be happy all the time. You have to have the range of emotions that we've developed as human beings for, for hundreds of thousands of years. And selling you that happiness, Pollyannish kind of thing is, is worse than or as bad as, as being angry all the time. Because yeah, you I think you hit the nail on the head. Before. You said that you get the emotion over with and you get it done, mm-hmm. you know. And so, then once it's out, it's out. And then you can continue on to the next part. Well, like we interviewing Mitch just before, Maury says uh, you, you, you grieve and then you detach. Mm. So you, you, have, you, make it, you make it happen and then it's done and off you go. That's fascinating. Um, there's, there's a little note that you've written in here in the notes, uh, which I really like, and, and it's, it, jumped, it jumped out at me, which is the abundant phobia. And, uh, and a lot of people live within their means, so to speak, and, uh, and they, they, uh, they, they build their, their little white picket fence out the front, they've got their house, and all of their belongings are inside the house, and they believe that that's as much as what they can have. And they look at what other people have down the road, and they go, oh my gosh, 
if only I could have that sort of thing, or he must do something, you know, blah, blah, blah. The abundance phobia, the, the term abundance phobia seems to sum it all up. Is, do you think that this is a significant thing that as a population... Of, you a know, global village. A global village. Are we all suffering from abundance phobia? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, first, because uh, by the concept that, that you can only be happy if you have a lot of things. So then we strive for it. Uh, but also, you see, the culture keeps you within certain limits. If you do really well, then you have to start uh, apologizing for doing so well. So you just get to a certain point that, uh, yes, I, I bought a new car, but I needed the new car because uh, um, mine was too old. So then what happens is that if you're not used to accepting that level of abundance, and when it comes to you, it's just as if you saw a lion in front of your house. Uh, it causes a tremendous reaction. So you have to desensitize yourself. You have to learn to gradually accept levels of, ang- levels of uh, uh, abundance. And, and abundance, I mean health, wealth, and love in a way that the horizons can be expanded. So, for example, cultural, uh, cultures have horizons too. When, when uh, the uh, elevator was invented, when Otis invented the elevator, it was unheard of that you would go up on something automatic without using the stairs. And people were having nosebleeds. To, to, to adjust to those kind of horizons. That doesn't happen anymore. Well, the same thing happens with, with uh, personal beliefs. If you have a horizon that says, uh, I can only make so much, when you go beyond that, even though you want it, you have a stress reaction. There's so much wisdom, and, and um, Dr. Mario, there's so much more that we could talk about. What I'm going to suggest to every single one uh, listening to 100 Not Out, watching this, on YouTube, Re- do yourself a favor. If you want to develop some of the ideas that Dr. Mario has shared with us, please read the Mind Body Code. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's absolutely essential reading. And again, it puts a whole new layer mm. to the philosophy that we share here on 100 Hour, particularly um, around culture. But Dr. Mario, I understand you're also writing a new book through Hay House. Would you be kind enough to share um, what that is um, when it's available? I think it's early 2017 and, and how people um, can get in contact with you as well, please. Uh, the, the website you were asking? Yeah, the website, and I believe you're writing a new book through Hay House, which is out early next year. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, there's a new book coming out. It's called The Cultural Self, and that will come out as Hay House. It will come out March 21st uh, worldwide. And then uh, you can just uh, Google Biocognitive or biocognitive.com. That's the uh, website, and all the information is there. And uh, Or you can go to, to uh, Facebook, and it will be the Mind Body Code Facebook. And uh, there's there are a lot of free stuff there, a lot of uh, articles and uh, videos and things that – that you can hear for for free and listen to for for free. Absolutely. Well, we'll make sure all of those links are in the show notes, folks. So make sure you click on them and find out more about Dr. Mario. Dr. Mario, cannot thank you enough for sharing so much of your wisdom, your time. I know you've been traveling. You've got a boomerang there. You're Australian at heart now. You've got a boomerang. So you're one of us. It's been um, a joy. There it is. There There it is. is. It's even Australian, mate. That's a good side. That's a good side. It's been a joy to have you share your wisdom and uh, your enthusiasm for, again, when you meet people, Damo, that share your enthusiasm for um, living your best life, for living this lifestyle. It's an absolute joy. And as we like to say to all of our special guests on 100 Not Out, Dr. Mario Martinez, may the rest of your life continue to be the best of your life. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure having you. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks a million, guys. Now, please make sure you go to thewellnesscouch.com. Find out more about The Wellness Couch with all 22 podcasts there. Go to the website that we've referred to for Dr. Mario. And to find out more about Damien, go to damienchristoph.com, myself, marcuspierce.com.au. And until next time, continue to make the rest of your life the best of your life. 
This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.